Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Film. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Today, I will be speaking to Bob Moss, author of the book, Vibes from the Screen, Getting Greater Enjoyment from Films. The book was published in 2016 by MCP Books. In the book, Bob introduces the elements of film and filmmaking by using the works of varied artists, including directors such as John Sayles and Steven Spielberg, film editors, including Walter Murch and Ann Coates, and actors such as Meryl Streep. I hope you enjoy my talk with Bob Moss. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Now, your book, it's meant to be, from the reading of it, it's, it's a basic how-to how to book for watching films. You even indicate there are certain aspects of film that you don't cover, that you meant to be as... as on a more general, basic level. But it contains a lot of original ideas plus what you consider to be the best of uh, what you've read and what you've uh, experienced. But before we go into more detail about the book, let's get a little bit about your background. Um, Since the podcast is devoted to authors, I always like to find out uh, what kind of uh, background you have, both in education, writing, and anything that you think is relevant for uh, just to learn a little bit more about you? Well, my undergrad was a focus on psychology and graduated from Northwestern with a PhD in psychology. And then um, I went on to law school uh, at Chicago Kent. And then as a lawyer is where my writing started, obviously, uh, writing briefs uh, became a real talent for me. I found I was really quite good at it. So that was the writing. And then um, when I quit the practice of law, I uh, or quit being a judge. I should say I wouldn't even quit the practice of law. I, I had become a judge. And when I quit that... Um, I went into teaching uh, lawyers for a little while and then said, enough of this. I want to do something for me. And I went back to film school, uh, took a few classes, and then began the self-education process uh, with the training DVDs from the various institutes, the writers, the directors, the cinematographers, etc. And we find, you know, my love of film. I had always loved film. That was never a, a question. And then um, after leading classes at Northwestern for four years, I took what we had been doing and converted it into a book. Found it fairly easy to write. It was the editing that was hard. <laughs> so that was my brief background in terms of becoming an author. And how did you find a publisher, or how did you reach out to find uh, a way to get this out to the public? 
Well, I mean, I started off doing the normal thing, trying to find a publisher or an agent that would help me get there and um, was not successful in that regard. And then I looked at self-publishing but decided that I didn't think that was quite the way. So I found what is now known as a hybrid publisher where it's very similar to self-publishing, but they do do a lot of the work. They do help you get the distribution. They get you into Goodreads, Amazon. I mean, I think they distributed me to 127 places. They designed the cover. So it was a real mixture of things. So I paid for it. They did it. Yeah, I, um, the way I found the book was I, as part of this podcast and then also my work as a librarian, I have subscriptions to a number of different galleys services. And um, since I'm always looking for new books for film because of the podcast, I ran across it that way. So that's how I sort of came to you. So obviously the publicity that they did for you helped. And it's sort of an offshoot of a Goodreads, but still separately. So uh, as I say, that's where I came across it. Well, shows they got it out there. Right. So... <laughs> How you, you obviously say you were a lifelong film fan. Where would we, I mean, what kind of, uh, were you somebody when you were growing up going to see films? Or is this something that started as, as you got older and found, found no, that? No, I, I remember as far back as 10 years old going to films on my own at the Neighborhood Film Theater. And at that time I was living in London. Um, and always loved films. I, I remember films from before that, but, uh, I just, you know, I don't remember going. I just remember I saw the film, but in terms of going and knowing I was at a theater, I can, I can go back as far as 10 years old and yeah, I always loved films. Um, when I moved to Chicago, I lived two blocks from the music box and my grammar school was across the street from the music box. And so I was constantly going there, either for the Saturday, Saturday matinees for kids or for movies, either usually without my parents, usually with other kids. Um, and I just always have gone to movies. And then it increased, you know, and then I started seeing two, three movies a week. And then, you know, as TV grew. I was watching a lot of movies on TV. So that was where I came into it. It sounded, sounds familiar with me. I lived where I lived, grew up. We had a movie theater within walking distance. So it was not unusual, like you say, on Saturdays to go to see whatever was there, sometimes evenings, but more often when I was growing up, it was then. But then I remember as I got older, starting to go to late to movies at night, which was obviously, mm -hmm. as you say, when you start young, you go wherever is easiest, but then you get a chance to start seeing. And, of course, back then, and this is something the new current generation doesn't even have to think about. Back then, the only way you could see some of the films we wanted to see was to go to the theater. You had no other options. And even on re-releases, for example, when a, a film like, uh, say, Gone with the Wind, they'd bring it back out to the theaters periodically, and it was a big deal to go to see something like that in the big screen because it was the only way you could see it. Right. And the other thing that, you know, I really cherish is the fact that most of the theaters that I went to were these big 
beautifully uh, designed theaters. You walked into some of the theaters here in Chicago. I mean, the 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 things around the gold handrails and, and the stuff on the wall and everything. It was just a beautiful place. And it was only one theater. There weren't any cineplexes. And it would have two or three balconies. But it was just someplace special to walk into. Yeah, I saw Sound of Music as a reserved seat when it opened up in a theater such as that. It was reserved seats mm -hmm. and we were in the balcony and it was, you know, it was just so different from even the movies I'd seen before then because it was such a spectacle. And it, it really right. was a good example of what movie going was like, especially for the big movies. You had your basic ones, your B movies, and even your better movies that would open normally, but then you'd have these big spectacles that would always open, like you say, in the big theaters with the, you know, splashes and everything like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. but then when did you, did, did you go through a period where you sort of stopped or was this a matter that you just kept building and building until you got to a point where your time um, allowed you to actually take your film going as more than just going to the movies for entertainment? Yeah, it was just a question of time. You know, uh, as my child grew and didn't, you know, I didn't have those demands. And as my career started, you know, fading out uh, and heading towards retirement, I had more time. So that's when I put the emphasis on um, saying, what can I do with this? And I originally started out the idea when I first went back to school was I thought, you know, I know this stuff. I really know how to analyze. Why don't I work on becoming an online movie critic? And so that's what I went back for. But I found out that wasn't me. <laughs> I couldn't write the type of articles or even do a podcast the way the movie critics did. I just couldn't cater. I've tried to write them and talk about it, and I'd go, the public's not going to want to read that, and a lot of them aren't going to understand where I'm coming from unless they've got a background. And so then I started looking for the background, what books were out there, and discovered the only books that were out there were film school books. There was nothing for the, I'll call them layperson, for lack of a better term, um, to get the information on how movies are made, what the various people in the movie do. Um, and there was, you know, everything was really expensive and nothing written at the right level, with one exception, and that was... Uh, Sidney Lumet's uh, Making Movies, where he took one movie, uh, Murder on the Orient Express, and talked about how he worked with every department that was involved in the making of the movie. And so you got an idea, at least, of how they went together and what he was looking for as he did it, and the resistance that he received from some departments. And that one was, was the only one I could find 
But even that was sort of limited in where it went in describing how they did their job. So obviously then you decided you had to basically create your own, for lack of a better term, curricula, curriculum to learn how to get a better sense of what movies are and how they're supposed to be put together and some of the most important aspects of movies. Well, yes and no. As I said, I, I went back to film school and in the film school, and, and I only took a few classes. I don't want anyone to think I was this big student of film school. I only took a few classes there. But I got some of the textbooks that they used and saw the elements that they talked about and the illustrations that they used. And it was those that gave me the idea of what to do with the discussions. Um, and I tried doing a course using one of those textbooks um, and, and understand my groups are people 50 to who knows what old. And um, they weren't interested in that level of thing. So we started doing the discussions on the movies anyway. And um, I just picked up on a few of the elements and said, OK, let's talk about this element as we saw the movie, you know, what, what did you think of it? And obviously got a bunch of faces looking at me. What are you talking about? I don't recall that because most people go to the movies to be entertained and they don't stop and think about the elements, but people started to, and the more they did it, the more they liked it and the more they started getting out of it. And, uh, my class went from 25 people to 140. So, <laughs> People started liking it, you know. Um, so that's what we did. And, you know, we started refining the way we were going to do the discussion. And I had two rules. They were not allowed to read a movie review before going to the movie. They had to go in with a totally open blank mind about the movie and let it hit them and give them whatever they were going to get out of it. Um, if they wanted to look up and see how many stars, fine, but that's all. And when we got together to talk about it, I didn't care whether they liked the movie or not. We weren't going to talk about that. We were going to talk about whatever elements we felt were predominant in that movie and how they affected them. And what did that do to help them get through the movie, to understand the story etc. Right. And then the other thing I did was um, there was a BBC program by Mark Cousins called Scene by Scene. And um, he interviewed directors and actors and talked about their movies, but may, had them sit there, describe what they were trying to do in a particular scene, regardless of what we thought. And that's what really got me going. When I saw that series, which Mark was very kind to ship to me from Edinburgh, um, and see the way those people analyzed the scene and realized that what they were thinking of was certainly nothing I would have thought of as I watched it, I realized there was a market to pull out of there and do it. And then um, I also watched Mark's... Uh, 15-hour series uh, on it's a history of, of film called The Story of Film and if anyone hasn't seen it 
I really urge them to watch all 15 hours. It covers all the different countries and how film progressed over the years and how people copied each other, how they grew and everything. Um, it is available on Netflix and it's available at almost all libraries. So I do recommend it. So that's how I pulled it all together. It was a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And as I got it, I conveyed it to people and then had them do their own reading. And as I said, we grew. <laughs> Sounds like it. Yeah, obviously word of mouth to a large, I suspect, helped that as well. Because, you know, one person, if you started with 25 and got to as high as you did, it certainly means that people were telling other people what a good uh, program it was. Right. Yeah, because they were saying, you know, I'm getting more out of the film. And they said, come learn how to do it. So when we go to the movies together, we can talk about it. And that's, you know, it's a social aspect of it. So, so. when you were taking film classes, you said you took a few, which I understand. I mean, you know, uh, like you had said, you weren't trying to become, uh, you, you had some ideas, but you weren't, it wasn't your plan to become a quote unquote academic in film. Right. What were can you talk about some of the films you saw in film school and how that you may have either not seen before or are there any where you could say well when I saw it but then when I took it in film class or when I saw it in film class and it was discussed differently I completely saw a different view of that film To be honest I can't tell you I mean that that did happen but I don't recall what right. Okay, and we really didn't see films. We saw clips. Oh, okay. Yeah, right? I took a... they'd show a clip and explain what was happening in the clip and why. Got it. And so I, I, I really didn't see films to do that at that point. Right. It wasn't until later on, when I was doing my reading, that I went and started pulling movies myself, you know, DVDs, to rewatch them and see what was happening and understand the history of what was going on at the time and therefore get a lot more out of it. So uh, yeah, that uh, was it. But I don't recall, you know, in answer to your question, I really don't recall anything from school. That's okay. Like I say, I went, I took one film class in undergrad, and we, we were lucky in that the, the instructor was able to get 16-millimeter prints of a lot of things. And as you can imagine, since they were 16-millimeter, most of them were older films. But it was the first chance I got to see some films that, uh, you know, that there were meant to be important films. But I, I you know, it was interesting because it was still in the period prior to home video, so mm -hmm. where it was much more difficult to to, to see a film, uh, you know, as far as that kind of thing is concerned. Right. Well, once I started doing the story of film, and you know, and I saw how Mark explained how that fit into the history and helped the development of film. Then I would start pulling films, and I went back as early as 1920, uh, watching films, uh, some of Charlie Chaplin's, uh, some of the early French stuff, uh, the Russian movies, to see what are they talking about. You know, and everyone always talks about Citizen Kane being the American mo movie in terms of movie making and how he introduced uh, so many new things in the use of camera and lighting and stuff. Well, I'd seen Citizen Kane a couple of times, but 
never really noticed that stuff. I thought, oh, yeah, that's an interesting movie. Um, but then when you go back and you're looking for elements and not paying attention to the story that much, then you see, you know, exactly what he did and why. So, um, and then I pulled, as I said, I pulled some of the French movies and um, some of the American movies. Um, the thing is, there wasn't that much innovation occurring in America. It was more heading towards what form of entertainment do we want than it was innovation. So, so the book, you start, you're, you know, you've got multiple parts, and the first part you more or less discuss some, is the background part. A uh, little bit of history, a uh, little bit of maybe psychology, I guess we could put that in there, of how when you, you talk about how films in, influence people. Um, the part I found most interesting was you made sure to include a section dealing with the difference between European and American films, because I think this is probably, in my thought, and hear what you have to say, people not watching foreign films, the way we'll put it, they don't know what they're missing sometimes, that, that the, the differences between American films and foreign films, that if you're really interested in learning more about film, that European films and other nations, it's important to learn about those as well. Well, that's right. And, you know, the, there's several things happening here. One is, unless you live in New York and to some extent L.A., you don't get an opportunity to see most of the foreign films. They don't get distributed. Chicago gets some, but... When you compare it to what opens in New York on any given week, Chicago is like getting nothing. Um, then comes the thing about having to read the subtitles. And Americans just, they, to, they find it abhorrent to have to do that. Um, I led a class today on uh, the man called uh, Uwe. Um which I thought was a great movie. And someone in the class raised their hand and said, you know, I had trouble keeping up with the movie because I was spending so long reading the subtitles. And so he didn't get what he needed to get out of the movie. Um, there was a trick to reading subtitles. But interestingly enough, someone in the class said, when did they stop the dubbing movies? And I thought, boy, do you go back in time. Um, and I don't even know when they stopped dubbing them, but I think it was mainly done in Europe anyway. And uh, Asia, not really that much in America. We did some dubbing. Um, so that's what takes away from Americans seeing it. And so you're right. They miss a lot of the art because American movies, for the most part, are there for entertainment. And, you know, a quote I have in the book um, from Samuel Goldwyn, you know, is movies are for entertainment. If you want messages, call Western Union. <laughs> and so he wasn't interested in the messages in the movies. And what has happened even today, though it seems to be changing somewhat, there was a period when 
Europe and Asia tried to copy the Hollywood mode, trying to get the big crowds. But that didn't work, and so they went back to their own. And the directors, for the most part, they control the art. They put it out there the way they want to, and then they go get funding. And a lot of their funding is government funding. And so it's not really a bean counter type thing. In the U.S., it's bean counters. Either the studio, who wants to control everything, or the producer that says, yeah, I want to do this movie, I'll go raise the money for you. And then the last group are the ones that make the movie somehow and then try to sell the movie uh, for distribution and get back the money that they raised. Um, And that's the indie group that is growing. And so you're beginning to see that group of American movies have a little more art and a little less entertainment. But for the most part, American movies are there to do the big splash. And the producers control it. And very often you can watch a movie and see it fall apart about two-thirds of the way through. And that's up to two people. Either the screenwriter messed up the script and didn't go back and keep the story constant, or the producer came in and said, no, here's what I want, and you're going to do this. And that gets to be a real problem. I think some of the things, like when you read about the making of either certain films or certain, um, usually directors, but sometimes actors, it's that kind of a thing. It's what happened to a film. And the way I always look at it is how many names do you see at the beginning of a movie as to that are quote unquote creative, you know, the number of producers, the number of writers, um, is there a story by, and then a screenplay by, I mean, that's where the more names you see, the more nervous I get before I see a film for fear that that's, what's going to happen. It's a, it's a film that maybe went through way too many hands and, and may have done irreparable irreversible things to it yeah and there were a number of movies that were shot overseas in english but shot overseas that had one ending over there and then had to do a second ending for the american release and so you know and then the fight becomes which was the better movie you know (laughs) so um that's it so americans though the american film watching audience as i said a, don't get the opportunity. When they do, it's limited, and then they go, they're go. they not used to watching the, uh, the words along the bottom, or sometimes the top, unfortunately. Um, and so then they go, oh, I didn't get anything about the movie. And one of the things we talked today was the way to train yourself for that is when you're watching things on TV, turn it on. Mute it and, you know, make it show you the words wherever, however they're doing it. Sometimes it's computer driven. Sometimes it really was typed up uh, to match a movie and get used to watching it and even leave the sound on. You know, they're talking in English, you're reading English, but you get used to seeing it. And eventually it all blends into one thing and you don't even realize you're reading. When I go to see a foreign film, 
I never realize I'm reading the subtitles. I hear the voice, and to me, that voice is saying it in the English, exactly what I'm reading, and I can watch the movie. But that comes with training and time. It's like any skill. Yeah. The more you do it, the better you get at it, and you, therefore it becomes second nature, and you're not even thinking about it. Right. So that's the thing. And then, you know, appreciating the difference in the way that the movie's made in terms of when do they give away the plot? <laughs> you know, when, when do you know what's going to happen? Do you ever know what's going to happen? How do they convey the drama? And those are two totally different things. Right. Yeah, one last thing about subtitles. I still remember seeing a, uh, an international film and sitting in the theater and the movie started and the subtitles started and I heard a, somebody behind me say to, their, to the person they came to the movie with, oh, I didn't know this was subtitled. I didn't bring my glasses. You're going to have to tell me what's going on. <laughs> I came very close to saying, you know what? I'm walking out and asking for my money back because I don't know that I really want to sit through a whole movie and have one person interpret a movie for somebody else. Right. But anyway. Um, so the book, after you get past the little bit of a setup that you do, and like I say, that's the section that, that talks about the difference between uh, European and American films, then you start to get first off to the basics of the, the film itself, that is, what are the parts? Obviously, a film has certain requirements because so there's got to be some aspects of visual, and then you talk about the story and those kind of things. Um, in reading through that section, uh, you go a lot of detail over what each part means. Uh, so, for example, the story, you even break it down into what, what are the various parts so that when we talk about the story of a film in a film, what's involved. Uh, when you started talking about this in your sessions, in your in your classes or your workshops, did you find that people seemed a little bit surprised that it was this com complex, that there was this kind of complexity involved in making, in what the film's elements were? Yes, absolutely. Um... I mean, they knew that there was a screenwriter and a cinematographer and a director, but they didn't, had never thought about the themes. And a lot of them admitted they had never really picked up a lot of the underlying themes in a film. And then when we started talking about it and saying not just the story, but what were the underlying themes, they went, oh, wow, I you're right, but that never hit me. Um and like hardly anyone ever see here's the music they go oh there was music <laughs> you know they're, they're so shocked and then they say well yeah i do remember a little bit but not much and then when people started paying attention to the music and uh, because i told them to and really following it with the movie and they realized the role of the music they said, boy, that just added something. I mean, there was something there. It made me feel. And they realized that the filmmaker had communicated with them through the music, whether it be the word, the sound, whatever, and just added to them. And um, it's a required segment of my discussions, and people love it. And I've got people that go to the movies now, people in my class, with a notebook. 
And they're sitting there watching it, writing notes, even in the dark. And keep track of these different things. Because they say, you know what? Even though we've been talking about it for four years, I don't necessarily remember it afterwards because I was trying to pay attention to the overall movie. But by making a couple of word notes, not a whole sentence, then I can go back and think about it. Here's the one interesting, and you, I'm not sure if you've seen the film. I'm, I'm going to guess you probably have. Uh, it was a film that came out, I don't remember now, 70s or early 80s, called The China Syndrome. That was the one about nu you know, the nuclear uh, uh, possible uh, uh, a meltdown that was, might happen at a nuclear power plant. There Jack is no Lemon music in the, the film. Not, there's, except for the main title where they have some pop song playing while they're doing the main titles at the beginning. There is not a right. note of music in the rest of the film. And right. I, it's sort of interesting for a film that doesn't have music in it, just as an alternative. I mean, I know these days, film music, depending on, you know, there's that period of time where it started to become important again to, to, to have film music. Of course, now we're in that period of time where, these you know, there's a large example of movies that the pop song that they use is more important than any other music. But I think we're in pretty good shape these days about filmmakers understanding the importance of music well but i think they always have and they've always realized the importance of it they just did some of them didn't know what to do with it and some of them felt like i don't even want to take away by the music but they those are the ones that struggled in making the movie but you know the music or the importance of music goes back to the early silent films. And the truth is, no film was ever a silent film because there was always a company in music with right. it. And they, it was sent uh, by the uh, director with the movie uh, half the time. Now, I think Chaplin was the first one to do a full score and send it out. Um, but, you know, the Russians in the 1920s, to them, if a movie didn't have music, it just failed. They thought music was an essential part. And so I think it's always been there. And perhaps, you know, you talked about the A movies and the B movies. Um, and I'm going to go off a little on the side here. The B-movies, for the most part, were made by foreigners. The people that were escaping Europe and Hitler. And who came over here, they had been filmmakers in their own country, and they came over here, and they needed a job, and the studio said, okay, you can make the B-movies. Film noir was primarily by European filmmakers. Um, but they also had their own musicians, a whole slew of musicians that had escaped the Holocaust and escaped Europe and were in Hollywood in their own enclave, and they were hired to do the music, particularly, for, again, for these B-movies. And then when people saw what was happening with those, it spread back into the A movies, not just as a musical, but doing part of the story and everything else. But that took a while. 
I mean, even Hitchcock, you know, who people would say, hey, he was an American filmmaker. Well, no, he wasn't. He was a British filmmaker who came over here. And he learned in Germany. And Germany was the American studio's biggest customer. They distributed more movies in Germany than they distributed in the United States. And that's why there was some problem when in the early years of the Nazi rise. But, yeah, and my point is, that's where they got it from. And then it came over here and they finally started learning how to use it. Yeah, I and I discuss the different people that do. You know, I talk about uh, the Big Chill and how he got his music from his college days and piled it together and used it. You know, I mean, people started getting it from all kinds of different places. Yeah, I think another example of that is American Graffiti, where oh. it, it's that's George Lucas's growing up music. Yeah, absolutely. And one of my favorite movies, too. <laughs> so the music is fantastic. But yeah, that is. But I know what you but, mean about the yeah. Russians in, in music because they were using composers. I mean, you know, what right. we would call classical composers, Prokofiev with Alexander Nevsky, and then, of course, Shostakovich was uh, another famous uh, Russian composer who was doing um, film scores on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And as I said, a lot of those guys ended up over here for a period of time. Right. So then, so, go after going through the various elements of a film, you then start talking about some of the various jobs, so to speak, some of the things that uh, people do in the movie. And you, you admit, you, you even, even in your introduction, you say you didn't really go into a lot of detail about certain job places. I think you said set direction and costuming and those kinds of things. But obviously you picked out the ones that you felt to be the most important with the typical film, which of course would be the director and then the, cinema, the cinematographer, the director, and the editor. Obviously those things are all necessary in order to um, make a film, even if it's the same person doing a lot of the same roles, you need those uh, uh, people, so to speak, or those jobs in order to make sure a film can be made. Obviously, also, whoever, like you say, uh, we already talked about the story, but, you know, the rest of it is you need those people. Um, did you? Well, yeah. I'm sorry. It, it really wasn't so much. They they are the most important. But the, like, if you look at it like any other business, it needs a board of directors. And that's what I chose were the three directors. Um, and the other groups that you're talking about, work under those three right. the set design the, you know, the decorations so they have important jobs and they do it but they work under those three and so that's why I picked those three and, and as you said it's a very basic book so I wasn't trying to cover the entire thing I mean I got enough left for probably two more books but <laughs> uh, that's that's why I went there with those guys of the three, I, I I would think, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I would think from your experience that the one of the three that probably the average person doesn't think about that much is the editor. Am I right about that, or is the cinematographer just as much? 
where people no, I'd say the editor. People, there are people that would notice the cinematography and say, "Oh, that was beautiful," blah blah blah. Yeah, but they don't think about the editing. And when you ask the question, "Well, what do you think of the editing?" They look at you, and then you got to give them examples and say, "Well, was it choppy? Was it smooth? Was the change in the scenery and the fades appropriate? Did it keep the story intact, or did you start losing your way?" What was going on with the editing? So, yeah, that that is the one that uh, is not done. Now, it's not fair either to lay it all on to the one person. Most editing is done with the director and the editor working together. Usually the editor will work out a rough draft, give it, and then call the director in, and then they sit and really refine it back and forth. There are some editors who their directors have grown to trust. And so the director says, go at it and show me your final product and then we'll work from there. So, but that's what they do. So, yeah, that is the one that the average person in the audience doesn't think about at all. I know you're right. I mean, for example, the same thing happens with cinematographers, or at least used to. I don't know how much of the day these days it is anymore, but there were certain cinematographers that knew that a certain director was probably going to want them as their cinematographer. And I don't know if that's the case. And do we have what we would call famous cinematographers the same way that there was a period of time where certain people like Gordon Willis and some of the other ones where the cinematographer in some ways was as famous as some of the other people who were involved in the making of a film? Well, um, Woody Allen's latest movie used uh, Vittorio Storaro right. as his cinematographer. Now, Storaro had not worked with uh, that many Americans, but he is a you know, very famous uh, cinematographer. Um, in fact, I was surprised that he went on that movie. Um, and he is responsible for so many others getting along because... He sort of took a hiatus from working on films to go study and came back and wrote a series of books primarily on light and color. And he came up with, you know, here's what this color means, represents, here's what this color, and sort of helped people narrow down how they use the color and how they didn't use the color. And just to give you an example of what he did in The Last Emperor, when it first starts out, it's very much red, with a red tint and a lot of red color, which to him represented birth and the beginning of the toddler ages. And then as the child grew and began to understand the world and walk around, it went yellow, which again, Vittorio thought represented knowledge and awareness and you can very clearly see the shift happening it's almost like with a cut in the movie it happens and then he's brought in if you remember when peter o'toole who was the teacher decided to bring the young emperor a bicycle i'll guarantee there weren't one in a hundred people that noticed the color of the bicycle but it was green, mm -hmm. because Vittorio said green represents education. And so for him, 
everything in a movie had a purpose. Every color had a purpose and was part of the storytelling. And he educated so many other cinematographers along that line. Now, they may have come up with what they thought was a different color representing that, but they still use the notion that a color represented birth, you know, death, education, whatever. They still followed that concept. So then the last part of the book is where you get into the analyzing part. And the one part I wanted to ask you about, because you talk, you know, you have a whole chapter devoted to where you view the film. Obviously, these days, as we know, we can pretty much watch movies in so many variety of ways, from obviously the cinema, the, the theater itself, to television sets, to devices, and all kinds of ways. What are some of your points that you make that you feel is particularly important with where you view a film and why it's well, so important? One. Yeah, number one. Movies are not made to be seen on small screens. When the director is shooting it, when the cinematographer is deciding the angle, they're making it to be seen on a large screen. And so, and that may change with the people like Amazon and Netflix and everyone actually paying for movies to be made for them. So if they're paying for that to happen and it's going to be shown, they know it's going to be shown on a smaller screen, um, the film industry may have to change the way it makes movies in order to give us a better film for a small screen. But when you, right now it's not. So when you shrink it, you lose the elements that are around the outside. You begin to lose some of the color. You lose the emphasis. And so it becomes uh, a totally different movie. And so that's you know hard. I mean, I quote uh, Spike Lee and I spoke James Cameron in the book. And you know, they are not in favor of people watching their movies on small devices. Now, Cameron says, you know, the smallest monitor I use when I'm shooting the movie is a 50-inch. That's what I've got on the set, and that's what I'm looking at rather than, you know, looking through the camera. I'm looking at a monitor to see what the audience is going to see, and he's looking at a 50-inch monitor. And even then, it's still sort of small, but he's got some idea of how to bring it down. Uh, Spike Lee says, no, he still makes it for the truly big screen and go from there i recently uh, just last week uh, saw son of saul for the third time the first time i saw the movie was at a film festival and they had the digitized version of the movie and so even though the you saw a box and, you know, you knew that it had been made in a box format in 35 millimeter film because it was the digitized version that didn't quite come across. And it was a much bigger picture. It was shown on a widescreen, a widescreen theater. And I, something didn't seem right to me. And I emailed a friend that I knew had seen the movie at Cannes and said, what's going on here? And she says, I can't believe you caught it. But yes, when we saw it at Cannes in the original 35 millimeter 
box format, it was a lot more claustrophobic. It was a lot more scary. And yes, it really came in. Then I saw the movie at a theater that was using a 35 millimeter projector to show it and saw the graininess of the film, which you don't see in the digital version and got a totally different feel. And it was a lot more claustrophobic. I definitely was in the room with the ovens or in the shower room and stuff. I could feel it. And then last week, I watched it at home. And I have an 82-inch monitor at home. And uh, I downloaded the movie from, I've forgotten which channel, but whatever channel had it, and watched it. And again, yes, I could see the box format, the 133 to 1. I could see a tiny bit of grain, but not much. The colors were different. And I became a lot more of an observer than I was someone who was at the scene the way I was when I watched it in the original format. So those things change all the way down the line. And if you take that movie and watch it on a tablet or a phone, you're not going to get anything. You're not going to get that feel. You're not going to imagine being in that room with the ovens. You're going to be looking and squinting to see what's there. And it just takes away from it. And so I know there's a big push for people to do that. And perhaps that's getting more people to see movies But in my mind, they're being deprived of the true beauty and art of the film. I think what you probably see is that, uh, like you've pointed out, some of the newer distribution systems, even though people watch them, can still watch them on their television, such as, like you mentioned, Amazon and Netflix and Hulu each have their own. They're now doing original programming, which isn't totally true. Some of them are not original. They're buying them. From somebody else and showing them but which is fine no that's totally true amazon's actually funding the making of the movie and sometimes right oh no i I meant that but then there's other cases where they just buy it and but they're there's they're funding it or in especially with sometimes with a television series from overseas you might find that they they they'll put it you know they've decided that uh, it's the first time they've got an exclusive rights to it and things like that but so obviously these are uh, systems that are, you know, have the ability to watch on tablets. And, and I suspect there are probably some things that translate fine. I'm going to guess that certain television shows, for example, it's less important, especially. But you're right, a feature film, I can't imagine sometimes, especially some of the ones they have, that, that the classics, or not even the classics, some of the, the better known great films, trying to watch them well, that way. Even the new ones... With all the special effects, which the kids love, okay? And they're really getting... They can't see those special effects on the small screen. They can't see the effect of it. Right. So, it's, you know, I talk about the vibes from the screen. Well, what are they getting from that little screen? They're not getting any vibe. Of course, my other point also is, and this makes a difference on how you watch a film and where you see it, and that's the sound. Um, we have a tendency of, you know, obviously we know film is visual, but the sound is important too. And I think one of the things that you lose, depending on how you watch something, especially in a theater, a a well put together theater, 
is is the way the sound can be and the difference that can cause depending on how you're watching it even at home if you don't have a decent sound reproduction method you you can lose a lot that way as well that's true you can and um you know i i use the seven ones surround at home for most things but not everything comes in in right. seven one and so you lose something last week i had to watch a film uh for a group i was leading and the only place i could find the film was through streaming um so i hooked my uh laptop up to my computer and used an hdmi cord and i was amazed at how good the color and the sound was in transmitting from the download into the uh, tv now i could only get stereo coming out of the computer but it was still good quality stereo um so you know sometimes you just gotta play around in order to get the right thing I sometimes think as time goes on that um, movies are going to be, you know, we, in, in audio we call it remastering. When CDs first came out, uh, they took the LPs and first off all they did was slap them onto CDs and then they finally figured out well, you have to consider the medium you're using. And maybe over time some of these films, not, you know, the one kind that we're talking about, the good ones that... To, to have them look better on a television screen that they'll figure the directors especially will come up with ways to to give you a better experience like you said with the with with your one example where even though you saw it on television it just wasn't the same experience no and though I don't think it'll be the directors I think it'll be the cinematographers who come up with it so because they're the ones that give you all the little details so in your experience with, uh, te well, teaching and leading the, the groups that you do, what would you consider to be good examples of films? I mean, I don't know. Obviously, I know you try to, to use current films, too, because obviously you want people to see them in the theaters. And I would suspect in Chicago you've got some choices, but still, a lot of them are going to be, well, you know, more current films. But what... Do you have examples of films that you want to make sure that you think somebody wanting to learn more about film should be seeing? Well, the one from my book, you know, Lone Star by John Sayles, I would think is a must film to see. For he has a number of different themes, and so you have to think about and identify the themes. He makes use of the colors to tell a story. Uh, he makes really interesting use of the camera angles and the camera shots. Um, he has one interesting technique that he uses. You'll be looking at a scene, and, uh, the and then he'll move the camera over. You'll see the camera will start moving to one direction or the other. And you'll see the same people in a totally different time. And, you know, usually a flashback. And then when that's through, again, the camera moves and you're back to the present time. Um, all at the same location. Now, his idea was to give you a history of that location and keep you there. 
And so therefore, the flashbacks really became easy to handle, very meaningful because you were watching the people that, you know, now and then. And um, it saved, uh, it was a lot easier for him in terms of just using a camera to make the turn and move over to a different point. And so it helped save him money uh, when he was making it. But it's a great study. And then, you know, if you watch the supplements that come with it, and I always tell people, get the DVD and watch all the supplements and learn what the filmmakers were really doing and why. Um, and watch the movie a second time with the, if they've got a full narration going on by the director, by the cinematographer, whatever, Watch it a second time with them talking about it. You're not going to hear the audio. You're only going to hear the director explaining, well, in this scene, we did this, and I aimed this, and we had to reshoot it three times. But this is so-and-so's hands, even though, you know, it's that's not the character you're looking at, etc. You learn all the little pieces. Uh, so That's when I usually try to turn on closed captioning so that I can read it. That way it's a little easier to follow what's going on in the movie at the same time I'm listening to the... Uh, director commentary right and you know you you get that and and that will tell you a lot um i think benjamin button you know forget about whether it was a great movie or not but it has a lot in it again with the use of the colors with the use of the camera angles and obviously with the special effects um but that's uh, a, a good movie to see if you're trying to learn something um so those would be two off the top of my head that you know someone said tell me where to start with some movies just to play with you know and go back and forth and start learning the elements um those would be two key ones um you could also watch the artist where obviously there is no sound other than the music right but you got camera angles you got shading and you got acting and what can they tell you and someone asked me in an interview a few weeks ago well how important is dialogue and i said it's not necessarily important two of the best movies that i've seen this year had very little dialogue um la tessa uh, with benash and tilda swinton's movie oh god the name ex- uh, escapes me. I can't think of it. Where she lost her voice, but was there in the movie and said a little. And she went into that movie with the instructions that she did not want to talk. She was depressed when she started making the movie. And so she didn't want to talk. And so that's what they did. And so her facial and body gestures told you the story. You didn't need to hear words. And I think it's really interesting that uh, the political debates right now, the New York Times is putting together a group at each of the debates where there's no sound. The people just get to watch the, the people on TV, the body motion, the faces and everything. And then they say, okay, who won and why? And I think that's an interesting experiment in terms of what can we tell from acting as opposed to hearing. Well, yeah, and, and you mentioned you go into detail with Benjamin Button in your book too, so that's that's an extra added part of that part of it. So, 
Are you going to continue? Do you think you've got another book in you, or do you feel like you've said what you need to say? I know you indicated you, you know, there's enough other material that you could go farther, or did you feel like I've made the point that this book by itself does a pretty good job of doing what I wanted it to do? I don't know if I got another book in me for, for a couple of reasons. One is I want to see what the response is. What do people feel they get from it? Do they get enough? And what else is it they want to know? Two is, you know, how well it sells. Because doing it the way I did cost me a lot of money. And you know, there's only so much that I'm willing to put in. And so the question becomes whether or not I recover it. I mean, it's much too early. It's only been on a couple of weeks, so I can't tell you what's going to happen with it. But that's really the thing uh, that I've got to concern myself about. Um, so, you know, I will keep making notes as I'm going through the classes. I will keep track of the movie industry. And, you know, if I don't have the book, I'll at least have some articles and I will expand my blog to have longer articles on it. And where is your and the blog is actually the name of your book, right? Right, vibesfromthescreen.com. That's right. Well, thank you for joining me. I really enjoyed this discussion. As I say, a lot of times I'm talking to people who are being more specific about a particular actor or a genre or even director. But it was interesting to talk about the 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 art of film, so to speak, on a more general basis because I think. That's an important aspect, too. We need to understand the, the how films are made and how they're meant to be made to, to understand everything better. So I'm really glad you took the time to talk to me about it. Well, thank you. I appreciate the time. And you know, any time uh, at all, I'd be happy to talk. So thanks a lot for having me. I want to thank Bob Moss for joining me today. I think his work joins the other great books meant to help us all better understand film. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more new books in film.